When our daughter, Bethany, was young, uh, she early on, uh, early on showed an aptitude for music, uh, taking after her mother, not her father. And so we saw this musical gift grow, and she became a, a beautiful piano player and violin player. In fact, majored in piano in college, along with double major music and missions. But when she was quite young, at one point, she had uh, learned a Rachmaninoff piece, uh, the great, one of the great Russian composers, a romantic, late romantic poet, composers. And she, uh, at the recital, she played it note perfect. But afterwards, her teacher made a very interesting comment, which I now look back on as a point of great wisdom. He said, she played it really well, but you really can't play Rachmaninoff until you've experienced more pain in your life. I think there's psalms in the Bible which are like that. Uh, psalms that you can read word perfect, but you really can't enter into the psalm until you've experienced and walked through a lot of pain. Uh, we are on the verge of Lent, which begins tomorrow, and we're about to enter into this journey into pain, into some very, very difficult challenges. I want to show you a picture here on the uh, overhead. Uh, many of us have a close connection to the Evangelical Ukrainian uh, Theological Seminary in Kiev, um, which I've been connected to for many, many years. And if you can imagine the, the difficulty, if you, this is a picture of students being transported from the seminary in Kiev to a safe location. They're having to travel effectively the distance between here to Atlanta. Now, this is in moving. Can you imagine what it would be like for us to have to move the entire, all of you, our entire community, everybody has to relocate to Atlanta. Now, not knowing what will happen to this location, it will be bombed to oblivion. We don't, they don't know. Hey, think about this. They, there's no way you can easily drive there because yeah, there's, of course, a highway that goes all the way there, like there is to Atlanta, but it's just packed with vehicles trying to get to Poland. So it's a very difficult thing. You could not rent a, any vehicle. There's no way to rent a vehicle right now in Kiev. It, they're all gone. So they, this, they, they couldn't even rent. They didn't have a bus. They couldn't rent a bus. They had to buy this bus. That's the only option they had. In fact, this shot is the last, there's actually as of this shot here, there were still 10 more students left to evacuate. That long journey back. Think about what this will do in the formation of that community. It's, it's amazing it's happening in the verge of Lent. And sometimes God brings us through unspeakable situations where we would really not like to go there. Psalm 89 is one of those psalms where you're like, come on, Lord, give me Psalm 100. Uh, you, you want to kind of pass over it. It's quite interesting that uh, the first two verses of Psalm at one point became a really very, like it was for years, the number one Christian chorus in America was the first two verses of Psalm 89. If a psalm could laugh, 89 would laugh at that one. 
And this was like a decapitation of that song and made into a chorus, a beautiful, beautiful chorus, by the way. But it is separated from the journey of this psalm. During COVID, uh, you probably heard the news, I'm sure you did, that 38% of pastors said they had seriously considered leaving the ministry. Now put yourself in your shoes, you're about to go into this ministry, uh, you're like, wow, maybe I chose the wrong thing. What am I doing here at Asbury? Um, we've, all had ex we've all had times when you get into a lot of pain there's a part of you that looks for an exodor. That's part of the human mechanism. And part of this psalm is teaching us a different way. I think there is a gap between our expectations and sometimes the reality of what God, uh, the experience of this. And John Goldengay, the, the well-known exegete, in fact, three volumes on psalms, was once asked, why did God give us 150 psalms? And he said, in kind of colloquial way, he said, well, I guess God, I thought there's at least 150 things that we need to learn how to say to God. But I think another way of putting it is that the Psalms are, in fact, 150 set journeys, preset journeys for us. And God has kind of laid out all the potential journeys that you will need to take. And Psalm 89 is, in fact, one of those journeys that we need to take. And we need to take the whole journey uh, all the way through to the end. And I mentioned earlier in the introduction that the Psalm 89 actually goes to verse 51. That's important because the last verse, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen, is a doxology. Each of the, uh, the, the books of the Psalms, uh, if you go to the, four, the, the, book, the Psalms is arranged in five books, right? That once circulated and eventually brought together into what we call the sung Torah, the sung five books of the, of the, of the uh, Psalms. But if you look at the, the books, and most of your translations will say book one, book two, etc., you'll notice that uh, book, Psalm 41, 72, 89, 106, and 150 are the end of these five books. And each of the, uh, the books ends with a doxology, okay? So it's just added, and it, by the way, in the Hebrew, they, they versify everything. And so even the, the, the superscription at the top, which we just have off at the top, you know, David in a cave or whatever, all of those are actually versified. They're part of the verse, verse 1 of the Psalms, all the way through the doxology. It's all versified, even though the Psalm may not be that full bit. Anyway, probably Psalm 150, that, probably that entire Psalm is very likely a doxology for the whole book of Psalms. It would be a long, extended doxology. So if you, if you take that as, as reality, and that the psalm actually ends in verse 51, the reason that's important for this day, before we go into Lent, I do believe it's one of the four psalms in the Bible that ends with no real proper resolution. Now there's one thing, especially if you're a minister like me, like I can take anything except for lack of resolution. Like resolution is really important to me and my makeup, you know. I can't stand not having things resolved. And so it's really hard when God puts me in a place where things are just not resolved. It's painful, difficult. Many of you know that experience. So if you look at the Psalms, there's Psalm 38 and 39. They're in two pairs. Those are Psalms of David. In 88 and 89, those four psalms have no resolution. A lot of psalms go to dark places, especially in the 50s, a lot of really dark places, but then they, they end up, you know, where things get resolved, God comes through, you think the covenant's restored, everything's wonderful. This, there's no wonderful, everything wonderful in this. 
doesn't end that way. Uh, Psalm 38 ends with uh, the Lord forsaking him. Uh, verse chapter 39, Psalm 39 says, Lord, depart from me, for I am no, I am no more. Uh, 88 is that very chilling psalm that ends, darkness is my closest companion. In this psalm, which pictures the anointed one of God mocked and scorned and ridiculed. Now, I mentioned Rachmaninoff. I, I was in, uh, I think I learned how to like read Psalm 88 and 89 like Rachmaninoff when I was with Steve Martin, who's here today. In 2010, we went to the Holy Land together. If you've not been to the Holy Land with Steve Martin, you've missed something. Because he's, like he's like the greatest Sherpa, They're like the divine Sherpa. It can lead you to places where no one else can lead you. And so I'm so glad I got to go with, with Steve Martin. So one of the things that he did and led us to was Caiaphas Palace, which is in the big picture of Israel, one of the later things excavated. And we were there, and of course, remember that Jesus, uh, of course, was arraigned at Caiaphas's after his arrest uh, on Thursday. And then the text, you know, talks about that whole Sanhedrin thing. And then on Friday morning, he's taken to Pilate, right? So, of course, the question is, well, what, where was Jesus Thursday night? And, of course, he was in Caiaphas's prison. And so, while we're there, Dr. Martin says to us, uh, you realize that we can go we can go down into Caiaphas's pit and see where Jesus was held. So we descend down into this pit, and many of you, some of you have been there, but if you descend down this pit, and you're actually going down to the pit where Jesus spent the last night of his life. This was his day before passion. And at this point, uh, Dr. Martin turns to me and says, I think you should read Psalm 88, one of these four psalms. But he had instructed, or he did, I'm not sure if he instructed or he just did it, but he had all the lights cut off. So we're in the pit, because there were, of course, no electricity, no electric lights down there in the first century. So just to experience what it's like, we had the lights cut off, and we're there in the dark, and he asked me to read Psalm 88. I can't read in the dark. So I pulled out my iPhone and I turned on the little, like, you know, the little fa the flashlight feature. And I sat there and I, run I read, read through Psalm 88. I didn't get it word perfect because it was a little dark, hard to see. I stumbled over some of it, but we played like mine and off. We, we experienced Psalm 88 in a way I'll never, ever think of it the same again. This psalm is written by a person named Ethan Ezraite. Uh, when they developed the psalms, they decided to give him only one. <laughs> you don't want to have too many from this guy, man. But Ethan is a remarkable person. He's mentioned eight times in the Old Testament. And Ethan uh, is, first of all, we know he's a worship leader, so he's one of the three main light worship leaders. Um, he, and I love this about him, in First Chronicles 15, we find out he plays his instrument or the bronze cymbals. Now, I mentioned earlier, I'm not very musical. I always thought, you know, hey, I think I could do the cymbals. You know, can you imagine, like, okay, like, that's my instrument. I, but if it turns out you actually have to have really good timing to do that, uh, 
It's not my forte. I would probably get it really wrong. So even the symbols eludes me. But he could really play, and those symbols were probably like this big around, not like the ones we have, but still, he played the bronze symbols. So he's a symbol player. God bless him. <laughs> he is, uh, there's these two, 88 or two brothers, uh, Ethan, of uh, right, and, and um, uh, there, there's, there's uh, Ethan in 89 and 88 is the, is the uh, I'm sorry, 89 uh, is uh, the, um, uh, I'm trying to find the two brothers' names, Heman. So Heman and Ethan are these two brothers. So there are two brothers in these two psalms. And then Asaph, who has 12 psalms, is their cousin. So worship kind of runs in families. The fourth thing we find out about him, which is really interesting, is in 1 Kings 4.31, they're trying to describe how amazingly wise King Solomon is. Okay, they really want us to know King Solomon's wise. Now, if someone said about me, hey, a tenant is a great baseball player, he can hit the ball like Derek Jeter. If you heard that, you're like, hey, you know what? That's, that's, going, that's great, right? Or if you're playing basketball, you know, hey, he can shoot like LeBron James. Okay, it says a lot about me, but a lot about LeBron James, right? So in the course of trying to extol the wisdom of Solomon, they say, well, Solomon's so wise, he's even wiser than Ethan, uh, the Ezraite, author of this psalm. So this, this man was known as a purveyor of wisdom. So in this psalm, as I mentioned earlier, he unfolds in the opening part of this psalm the amazing character of God. And then he... Part two launches into all of these promises, 12 promises uh, of, to Israel, I mean to David. Verse 19, I've, ex I've, my, I've exalted my chosen one from the people. Uh, I have anointed it with oil. My hand has established him, three. Four, uh, the wicked and the enemy will not outwit him. Five, uh, he will crush all of his foes. Um, my five, my, my faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. My hand will be on him in the sea and in the rivers. Six and seven, I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of all kings. This is a, again becomes obviously later messianic language, the firstborn, because David wasn't the firstborn. Uh, my steadfast love, I'll keep him forever, number eight. I will establish his offspring forever, number nine. I will not remove my hesed from him, my, hesed, my steadfast love in verse 10. Number 11, uh, I'm sorry, verse 33, the 10th one. The 11th one, I will not violate my covenant. And 12, his offspring will endure forever as long as the sun. So he actually trots out all the promise made to David throughout the whole co the old covenant, and he repeats them all one after the other. God, you made 12 promises, and I'm going to remind you of all 12 of them. And then 38, after a silah, whatever that means, some kind of inter, you know, interlude or whatever. You've got to take a breath here. But! And then, bang! You've cast off and rejected us. You're now full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced your covenant. This is, this is telling God, you've renounced your covenant, God. You don't hear that. That didn't like fall into you know, evangelical ears very easily. Um, you've defiled this covenant in the dust. You've breached all the walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. The enemies, number eight, have rejoiced. Number nine, you've turned back all the, our swords. 
You, you have made, number 10, you made it the splendor deceased. Cast his throne to the ground. 11, you've cut short the days of his youth. And 12, you've covered him with shame. 12 laments in the presence of God. The Psalms gives us permission to say things like this to God. And then he, like Psalm 88 and 89 both have six questions. He has six questions. How long, O Lord? Like Psalm 13. Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? He asks, verse 48, what can man, how can we live and never see death? How can we deliver our soul from Sheol? And they ask the Lord, Lord, how long are you going to mock your servant? This is a very, very troubling song. And I think all of us can number times in our lives where we feel like our expectations were not met. Uh, one of the most chilling phrases of this generation is the phrase, God does, did not show up, or God showed up. It reveals a lot of our theology about what we expect God to do in situations, in our lives, in our worship services, in our careers, our ministries, everything. And, you know, the, the, the church has vacillated between two extremes of this, and, and to, to, our, to our credit, we're trying to figure this out too, aren't we? On the one hand, that part of the church which we know that says, you know what, this is God's work. Uh, we, we, have, we can't do anything about it. You know, God does his work, and we're very, very passive in that process. We know that that makes sense. There's other side that says, you know, well, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this thing. We're going to solve this problem. We're going to make it happen. You know, through our, our uh, brains and brawn, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. Kind of have like Moses, you know, hey, if you want to be a deliverer, sure. Uh, let's go kill the Egyptian and hide him in the sand. You know, it's like, I'll be a deliverer. He wasn't ready for 40 years in the desert of Midian tending sheep to prepare him to actually be a deliverer. We, we get that side. We get also like maybe Gideon, who's in the pit, saying, Lord, why in the world are you showing up in my doorstep? I'm a nobody. I can't do anything for you. So the way we resolve this tension is some version of, well, you do your part, God does his part. That is heard so much in our circles. I'm not small at Asbury, but just in Christian circles in general, I'm sure here too. Well, you know, you do your part, God does his part. I actually believe that's one of our, you might say, soft heresies. It's not that we, it doesn't, you know, we don't, when we say that, we mean well, and I think we're, we're, we're trying to be orthodox, but I actually believe we missed the mark on that statement. Well, you know, you do your part, God does his part. Because if we actually follow that theology, I mean, a lot of times we feel like God's just not doing his part. He just doesn't seem to be, quote, showing up. And it's going to put a situation, as many have in, our, in this generation, of saying, you know what, I'm checking out of this because God is not meeting the expectations I have. What if something else is going on? What if there's another way of looking at this dilemma that Psalm 89 is uniquely preparing us to think about in a more profound way? You know, Augustine famously said, without God we cannot, without us God will not. Is God actually addressing us 
to think about things differently. What if God is actually allowing us to, during Lent, to brush up against his own loneliness, his own rejection? See, because we, we've been thinking about God, we, we think about God and we've been trained on God ontologically. So all those things are not possible because God's, God's perfection. Absolutely, it's true. But the point of the gospel, isn't it, that you know, unless we are either uh, deist or we have some kind of docetic Christology, we have to actually believe that in Jesus Christ, God entered into a world of pain and actually experienced it. This means that, G- that Christ came up and took up into himself all of the rejection and pain and suffering that many of us live with all the time in our lives. And so when we pray, Lord, we want to be like you. Lord, we want to be in you. We want to, we want to be united with you. The Lord's like, are you sure? Or do you really want to come into my world? Says the Lord to us all. Do you really want to know what it's like to be God in the world? Do you really want to know what it's like to be, to be rejected? To woo people to myself and then reject me and walk away? Do you really want to be one with me, having a heartache for a world that doesn't even realize its need for him? What does it mean for our deepest prayer to be like him? Where Paul says in Philippians that we actually lose all things for the sake of knowing him. What does it really mean in Lent to actually lose our pride of place, to lose our reputation? lose our own carefully worked out definitions of what success looks like? Think about it. It's really, really Psalm 89's bone chilling. It may be something where Paul talks about how we're, we're sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. I think for us, we often look at the whole thing through the lens of justification. Yeah, in Christ, we were crucified with him, we were, our sins are buried with him. We rose from him, rose with him. We totally get that side of things. The whole justification side, we get that. What about on the sanctification side, this side of the cross? What does it mean now on this side for, for Paul to say, uh, we, we are to be crucified with Christ? For Paul, Christ to say, take your cross and follow me daily. Paul says, I die daily. Paul says, I make up in my own body what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. What do we do with all that? It's about something about what it means to be embodied and formed in this world that's extremely painful, difficult. In Romans, Paul actually says, in Romans 8, that, that amazing passage, where Paul is listing these seven things, and by seven, it's like seven is like the symbol for like, it could be 70, right? But shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, what, you know, what will serve the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. And then he quotes, amazingly, from Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul, we're wanting a resolution. Instead, Paul invites us into this journey of, of Psalm 44. Another painful journey. And he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He doesn't say out of these things. He didn't use ek, he uses in. In these things, you are conquering in Christ because we're discovering in these things, 
Because our prayer is always to be delivered out of things, right? We endlessly pray, God, get me out of this. And the Lord's saying, no, I'm calling you into this because in it is where he is. In it is where we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And it's actually there that he actually says that that's where we encounter uh, the love of God. It is, it is quite remarkable. So in this psalm, as it comes to an end, this is what he actually says in verse 50. And it gets good old, you know, here he is in this suffering pain. He ends by saying, remember, O Lord, how your servants, plural, are mocked. And then he says this, and this is it. This is amazing that this is said in the psalm. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. He is, he is saying that I vicariously am, you know, that this whole psalm works in this kind of like, you know, David symbolically, Israel collectively, the Messiah prophetically mode, right? That many psalms do. You have David representing kingship and all this, the Israel embodying the, the, the nation as a whole and God's covenant, and then ultimately the Messiah. Here you have David, and he is bearing all the insults to the Davidic covenant in his own life. With which your enemies, O Lord, mock you. And then it ends, this most, and this is, this is a remarkable ending, which, which they mock, the, and this is the end of the psalm, the footsteps of your anointed. Okay, they're mocking the footsteps. Where do you find that phrase in Scripture? The footsteps of your anointed. This is the word, the last word of the psalm is uh, Mashiach. It is the word Messiah, your anointed one. Again, it's prophetically pointing to the one who would, in fact, bear all of this pain, all of this suffering. So tomorrow, we're going to be asking you, well, today we bear the alleluias, and we're going to come forward tomorrow and receive the imposition of ashes on your head. And my, my call to this community is that over the next 40 days, we think about all the suffering, the challenges, the pain, the anxieties, the depressions, whatever it is that right now you would like to run from, this is a time to walk into it but the difference is you're walking into it in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we walk into it. And we actually get, symbolically at least, the stigmata, the, the, the marks of Christ. This is the mark of Christ, where we ourselves become the people of the crucified one. And we're willing to live in that unresolved tension for 40 days. We realize, thankfully, that this is not God's last word. Thank God for that. But unfortunately, we cannot receive God's last word until we sit in his word for us today. And that's the hard part. We have to sit in this word before we can hear the final word. Thanks be to God. Amen.